We're continuing our summer series uh, in the Psalms. The Psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament church. They're still actually the song book uh, of the church today. The songs in the Psalms are able to give voice to our hearts with words that sometimes we're even unable to articulate ourselves, with words that we didn't even know we were experiencing. But when we read the Psalms, we find that our hearts are in fact experiencing what Christians throughout the ages have experienced, especially in times of suffering and trial and distress like we're experiencing even now around the world. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. It is the longest psalm in the Bible. It is actually also the longest chapter in the Bible. And in Psalm 119, we learn about the ABCs of heart care. Now, the ABCs is a song that many of us learned when we were very, very young. It's a song that seems to never go out of vogue. It's a song that we teach our children and grandchildren today. And it's a song that has received new popularity, even as we've gone through this COVID crisis. Way back several hundred years ago, there was a French folk song that used the tune that we know as A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And it really became popularized when the great composer, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as a young man, composed 25, or I'm sorry, 12 variations on the song. Now, you may not realize, but that tune is used for all kinds of nursery rhymes. If you've sung Ba Ba Black Sheep, you've sung the same tune. If you've sung Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, you've sung the same tune. And if you've been washing your hands to the ABCs, you have been using the same tune. There's a gal at the University Medical Center of Baylor. Her name's Susan Hall. And she says, effective hand washing during COVID takes at least between 15 and 20 seconds. And the reason why we are told to sort of hum through or think through the ABC song and the tune that Mozart popularized was because that's about how long it takes to say that song and therefore for our hands to be clean. But what we're going to learn about this morning is that the ABC song of a different kind doesn't cleanse our hands, but actually is used to sanitize our hearts. Let me tell you about what's interesting regarding Psalm 119. It's an ABC song. If you have your Bibles, you'll notice that there are different stanzas. And in fact, there are 22 different stanzas of eight verses each. And your Bibles, if they're, I think, really accurate Bibles, will, will have the Hebrew letter and the name above each stanza. So instead of A, B, C, it'll be Aleph, Beit, 
Gimel, Dalet, and so on. Hebrew has 22 letters. Of course, our English alphabet has 26. Now, what makes Psalm 119 so interesting is that they're set up in stanzas following each letter of the alphabet for memorization. Now, this is a psalm that takes 15 minutes just to read out loud. You wouldn't want to wash your hands to this psalm. And yet, it's set up to be memorized. Matter of fact, uh, no one less than William Wilberforce understood that it was meant to be memorized. And so, he, in fact, memorized it and said it changed his life. And, of course, you know that William Wilberforce is the member of parliament in England who led the way for the abolition of slavery. What you'll find is uh, in the Hebrew, as it begins with A, Aleph, the first letter of the first word in every line, in every verse, begins with A. The second stanza, Beit, the first word in every um, line begins with B, and so on and so forth. So you have 22 stanzas, eight lines or verses each for 176 verses. This morning, we're going to look at the ninth and tenth letters, which are Tet, which is where we get our letter T, and Yod, where I guess we get the Yah sound. The particular focus of these two stanzas relate to the goodness and kindness of God related to times that we go through suffering, trial, heartache, distress. Now, the reason why we're doing Psalm 119 is because it's the psalm that is in view this week in our devotional called A Good Confession. But it couldn't be more timely for what many of us, all of us, I suppose, are experiencing this summer. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. And if you're watching at home, uh, live streaming, I would encourage you to stand as well. Uh, again, this is, a, this is a psalm all about the benefits of God's Word, how we're to approach it, what we're to see it as and all the hope we get from it. So Psalm 119, verses 65 to 80. This is God's Word, about God's Word. You have, dwe- you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your Word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your Word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then we go to the Yod. So again, every first word of each verse begins with Yah. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. 
Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. And Psalm 119 is God's word about his word. And he gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us to be equipped to live this life in spite of all of its brokenness with great hope and faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book, but particularly for Psalm 119. You've used it in my life to impress upon me the the beauty and the wonder and the importance and the priority and the primacy of being in your word. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do that among all of us even now? Those who are here standing, those who are at home watching, God, may all of us have a deeper hunger, affection, and awe for your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we're going to be looking at the ABCs of heart care. Three basic elements related to growing a healthy heart. First of all, approach the Bible wholeheartedly. One of the things you'll find in Psalm 119, not just in the stanzas we're looking at, but in the entire psalm, you'll find attitudes of the heart that we're to ask God by His grace to cultivate in us whenever we come to God's Word. Whenever you open the Word, whenever you come to church, whenever you go to a discipleship class or group, we should always go into those times praying, God, give me these attitudes you speak of that the psalmist speaks of to describe his heart. So look at verse 69. With my whole heart... I keep your precepts. Now, if you do a study of the word heart, especially in the Old Testament, you'll find that sometimes the word heart refers to thoughts, our rational self. Sometimes you'll find the word heart is appealing to emotions, our feelings, our emotional self. At other times, the word heart is appealing to the deepest desires of our souls. And at other times, The word heart applies to the choices that we make and are called to make. And so to keep God's scriptures and precepts with our whole heart means, listen now, that the scripture is the final authority of our lives. The scripture needs to be trusted and submitted to more than anything else there is in life. For instance, we all have thoughts, we all have opinions of various things in life. 
If our thoughts or opinions differ from God's word, God's word has final authority, and my opinions have to shift, and my thoughts have to be transformed. That's what it means to keep the precepts from a whole heart. If my feelings are contrary to what I should be experiencing, if something happens in life and I have a certain feeling toward that issue, if my feelings differ from Scripture, then God says, Bob, you have damaged emotions and they need to be healed. Scripture doesn't change. Your emotions must. If I have desires that are out of accord with Scripture, then my desires have to be purified. If I face choices that seem almost impossible, then God says your perspective needs to change. I wouldn't call you to choose that which is impossible. I will give you the grace to do that which seems most difficult. Look at verse 66. For I believe in your commandments. Uh, uh, the commandments of God tell us not only what to do. See, when we think of commandments, we often think in terms of behavior. But the commandments of God also relate to what we're to believe in life. You ever see those uh, team building exercises that various companies, corporations, offices uh, engage in? And one of the most basic team building exercises is something called the trust fall. And I'd have some people behind me, uh, maybe Tom Patton and, and Greg Poole, uh, who are associates with me, and, and I would just be told to fall backwards and trust that they were going to catch me. That's the attitude with which we're to go to Scripture. No matter what issue we may be facing, no matter what questions we might be wrestling with, no matter how confused we might be or how opposed to culture, friends, family, how opposed to everything else other opinions might be, I'm supposed to lean into Scripture. I'm supposed to fall into Scripture and trust it. Do you believe every part of the Word of God? Psalm 119 makes it very clear. We're not free to pick and choose. It's all or it's nothing. And I think sometimes the people of God are not challenged on that enough. It is all or it is nothing. You either trust in all parts of it, or you trust really in no parts of it. It is not up to you to decide which parts you like, which parts you trust, and which parts you follow. It's all or nothing. And as we come to know Christ, He will enable us more and more to submit ourselves wholeheartedly to God's Word. Look at verse 70 and 77. For I delight 
in your law. You know, I get the idea sometimes that, that people struggle to spend time in God's Word. Matter of fact, they call it a discipline. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I understand what people mean when they call spending time in God's Word a spiritual discipline. But I never call it that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But I never call it that because I want there to be more joy. I want there to be more pleasure. I want there to be more excitement. This is the greatest means of grace available to us. We should eat this book constantly. And its words all throughout the Bible are called sweeter than honey because of the pleasure that it brings to our souls. This is how we grow a healthy heart. By feeding it a steady diet of the pleasant Word of God. Do you delight in Scripture? Is it your greatest pleasure to read Scripture? It is mine. And I pray it would become that for y'all. Verse 70, I will meditate on your precepts. See, what we're called to do when it comes to Scripture is not just read. There's no Evelyn Woods speed reading Bible course. You don't speed read the Bible. The Bible was never meant to be speed read. The Bible was meant to be chewed on. Like a big, old, hearty ribeye steak. See, you can guzzle milk. You can chug milk. You try to chug a steak, what happens? There'll be somebody doing a Heimlich maneuver on you really quickly, right? You can't chug a steak. Well, I guess if you ground it up, you could. But I'm talking about just a good, tasty steak that you cut. Okay, you chew it. And that's what the word meditate means. You slow down. You reflect on it. You, you suck every bit of flavor and pleasure out of it. This is what it means to approach the Bible wholeheartedly. We ask God to develop by His grace these attitudes of the heart for us. We're to take our time and we're to eat this book. About a year ago, the Tampa Bay Times held an article called It Pays to Read. There was a company that does travel insurance in St. Petersburg, Florida, it's called Square Mouth. And it sent everybody who had applied for travel and search its policies. And it's $4,000 document. It's about 10 pages. And most people do what I do. Matter of fact, just yesterday, I downloaded some software for my iPhone. You ever done that? Okay. What's the first thing that happens? There's this, this box of information that shows up, right? And before you can download it, you have to say, you agree with the software user uh, paper, policies. And have you ever read it? I've never read it. I just scroll down, however many pages it is, and I tap, I agree. That's what we all do. Well, there was this woman in St. Petersburg, a high school teacher named Danellen Andrews. She uh, calls herself a self-described nerd who says she always reads the terms of all policies of every document she receives. And so she printed out the travel insurance policy and sat down to read it. Sounds like a cure for insomnia to me. So she reads this. And about three quarters of the way through, she comes to this line. 
This is a contest that rewards any individual who reads their policy information from start to finish. If you are reading this sentence, contact us immediately. You may be awarded in the Pays to Read Contest grand prize of $10,000. Andrews immediately emailed the company. The next day, the company called her and said she had won the $10,000. They were only 23 hours into a contest that they anticipated would last a year because nobody reads those documents. And they were hoping to get all kinds of advertising and all kinds to get their name out there among all the people as they have this, excuse me, contest. And it was done in 23 hours. How many of us eat this book? How many of us recognize that it pays to read this book? No, you're probably not going to win $10,000. I don't think God has said, call this number and you're going to win some money. But if you take the time to approach this book the way God calls us to in Psalm 119, it will reap dividends in your life for all of eternity. Will you commit today to renew your practice of reading the Bible, of not skipping sections, Because you never know what treasure is waiting for you on every page. Approach the Bible wholeheartedly. Secondly, read the Bible hopefully. Look at verse 74. I have hoped in your word. Now what's interesting about this stanza. Okay, this is the stanza that has the word tet. It's where we get the letter T. And five out of the eight lines in this stanza begin with the same T word, the word for good. The word for good in Hebrew is tov. When it said in Genesis 1 that God created and it was good, the word there is tov. That's the word for good. And five of the eight tet words that begin these lines is tov. So verse 65 you have, dwelt, you have dealt well with your servant. In the Hebrew, the word order is good. You have dealt with your servant. Verse 68. English reads, you are good and do good. Hebrew reads, good you are and good you do. Tov, tov. Verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Hebrew, good tov. It was for me that I was afflicted. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The Hebrew, good to me, is the law of your mouth. Tov, 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 tov. The more we read God's word, the more we're reminded of the hope of his goodness toward us. Verse 65, good you have dealt with your servant. In other words, God deals with us infinitely better in goodness than we could ever dream we deserve. You know a struggle I had this morning? I actually have it every Sunday. Okay, 
commiserate with me just a little bit, will you? Picture your week. Okay, picture your past week. Picture your failures. Picture the things you felt guilty about. Picture the things that you self-condemned yourself over. Things that you got frustrated with about yourself which may mean you got frustrated with others. That's what you got frustrated with about yourself. My point is, every single one of us goes through the week and we're painfully aware of our failures and our brokenness and our sin, right? Now, put yourself in my shoes. This isn't a pity party for Bob, okay? I'm actually making a point. Put yourself for the week you've had in my shoes and you've got to get up in front of God's people And you've got to proclaim with conviction the word of God. And you realize that you're powerless all the time, even on your best day, to make this word effective to change people's lives. So you know that you're absolutely dependent on God to show up in you and through you and in the congregation. But if you've blown it throughout the week, then what confidence do you have that God's going to listen to your desire to speak through you and to speak to the congregation? Why should he show up with any power after the week I've had? And as I was leaving my office this morning to come and preach at 815, I wouldn't even plan on saying this in my sermon. God said, Bob, I am better to you than you deserve. I'm infinitely more good to you than you deserve. So go preach because I'm good and I do good. Now where do you need to hear that this morning? Where are you timid concerning God's goodness? You feel you don't deserve it? And God says with a wink, of course you don't deserve it. I treat you better than you ever think you deserve to be treated. You have dealt well. Good you have dealt with your servant. Verse 68, you are good and you do good. And by the way, this is connected to affliction. Three times in this section, the goodness of God is related to affliction. And don't we need to know about the goodness of God when we're afflicted? Don't we need hope when we're being afflicted? Because when we're being afflicted, what do we normally and and logically often think? I'm being afflicted because I am bad. I'm being afflicted because I'm being punished. Because God's disappointed. But God says just the opposite in this passage. The psalmist writes, it was good that I was afflicted. Because before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your commands. God, you afflict me in righteousness. You afflict me in faithfulness. See, the book of Hebrews says that God afflicts or chastises, makes chaste, or disciplines every child he loves. But if you're not being chastised or disciplined, 
or afflicted, then you are an illegitimate child and not his son or daughter. Do you see that? So many people who are believers that I talk to, including myself, I talk to myself a lot, we're trying to live in such a way to avoid God's affliction, to avoid God's discipline, to avoid God's chastisement. And I'm here to tell you, you cannot live to avoid His chastisement. God doesn't chastise those children who are naughty. God chastises, disciplines His star athletes, wanting to make them better than they ever dreamed they could be. Just like a coach does to an Olympian. And the psalmist realizes that because God is good, his affliction is good. And so as that applies to to normal life and the pandemic, I mean, think about that. Not only are we all going through a pandemic, but many of us are going through trials and tribulations that would have already been difficult had there not been covid And you add COVID on top of what we're already facing, and it it tends to become the straw that breaks the camel's back. And God says, remember, it is in faithfulness that I'm afflicting you. It is in love that I'm afflicting you. I'm afflicting you because I love you, not because I don't. And only the Word of God gives us that hope. The hope of mercy. Verse 77, the hope of comfort, verse 76, the hope of of keeping God's word. I was on a call the other day with uh, Covenant Seminary where I'm on the board and uh, we're looking at our vision and value and mission and we're wanting to get a better handle on how Covenant Seminary can be a, a seminary for the world, for the global church. And so we're doing a little bit of a study about Uh, the global church and what different nations are bringing to the table and how we can better serve different nations and according to the gift God has given them as a national church. And it's amazing to see how God's at work in different parts of the world. For instance, as we all know, uh, Europe and America are way on the decline when it comes to the gospel. But worldwide, There's more happening than in the history of the gospel. But it's all moved south. South America, Africa, Asia. Please don't lose heart. God is more at work now in this world than he has ever been. It's just that we don't see it as much because it's not in America and it's not in Europe. One of the places God is really at work is Colombia. And there were studies done on what does the Colombian church bring to the church globally. We need to realize that narco-terrorism, cartel terrorism, has destroyed that country. There's not one Christian church, true Christians, in Colombia that hasn't had men or women kidnapped and murdered women raped, children kidnapped and enslaved. And the Colombian pastors have decided that together 
their contribution to the global church is a theology of suffering. It is good that we've been afflicted. That people who look to us may have hope. Because as heart-wrenching as it's been, it has not destroyed us. And as illogical as it sounds, God has never been at work more than he is right now. Now, can I be pointed for a second as we talk about reading the Bible hopefully and having hope in the midst of affliction? I'm going through a tension right now, by the way, as your pastor. Because I I see the need to be your pastor, to be very pastoral, a counselor, a shepherd. But you need to know I'm also seeing and sensing things that are more related to being a prophet. And you know what the prophets did. The prophets rebuked. The prophets confronted. Now, a sense, in a sense here, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir because you all are here, so I'm, I'm going to be speaking mainly to the people that aren't here. And listen, I get it. If, if you're high risk, you have uh, comorbidity factors, um, you shouldn't be here. And we want to encourage you to continue to live stream. But as I've talked to pastors around the city, you know some of the things that we're hearing? Well, I'm not going to come to my church as long as they have reservations. I'm not going to come to my church as long as they require face masks. Really. So Christians in Colombia are being raped, murdered, kidnapped, and enslaved. And Christians in Birmingham are not coming to their church because it's against their principles of signing up for a reservation. That, by the way, is absolutely necessary in order for you all to be seated safely. And because we require a face covering? And we wonder why God is moving south when it comes to the impact of the gospel in the world? Now, I hope I'm a gentle prophet. But you need to know, I think there's serious business people need to do with God if that's their attitude. We need the Word of God to give us hope and guidance and life. And Psalm 119 calls us to immerse ourselves in it. And then thirdly and finally, Treasure the Bible richly. Not just 
the stanzas uh, that we're looking at this morning, but through the entire Psalm 119, there are eight different descriptions or terms that are used to describe what the Bible is. For instance, um, in verse 65, 67, and 74, the word for Scripture is the Word. And that has a very specific meaning. The Hebrew word word in Psalm 119 refers to revelation, special revelation. When I call it the inspired word of God, God breathed. Whenever you see the word word, it's like in John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, that's the living word, Jesus. But as Hebrews 1 said in our call to worship, Jesus in these last days has revealed the exact representation of God's likeness. And so when the Bible is described as the Word, it's the special revelation of Scripture that tells us we could never, ever know God if it wasn't for the Scriptures. Unless God wants to be known, He can't be known. And He gave us Scripture revelation so that we might know Him. So spend time in God's Word. The same way you'd talk to somebody on the phone. The same way you'd FaceTime with somebody to get to know them better. If you're separated from a spouse because of some business deal and you had to be in Europe and your spouse had to stay here, you FaceTime or with your kids. You spend time in conversation. And that's the only way we can know God, through His Word. Verse 66, the Bible is known as commandments. And commandments are not just related to behaviors. Commandments are the guiding principles of an all-sovereign, all-wise, all-knowing God. So really what the commandments do is develop a palette for beauty, goodness, and truth. That, that's what the commandments do. See, we think of it in terms of behavior. See how rich God's Word is? The treasure chest of God's Word Commandment just doesn't mean, you better do this. Commandment means God, as the one who made you, wants to develop a palette for all kinds of riches in this world that really matter. And as you spend time in the Word, and the Word forms your conscience, and forms your thinking, and forms your emotions, and purifies your desires, then you have that discerning palette of what is truly good and beautiful. Verse 68, 71, and 80, the Bible is described as statutes. Now, statutes have the the nuance of being forever binding and unchanging. And how much do we need that in our day? I mean, do you realize how how much life has changed since I was little? And it's changing every week now. And unless we have the unchanging statutes of God, we will be led astray. Because you begin to feel that everything around you is telling you what is true. And only this can tell you what's true. Precepts, verse 69 and 78. Precepts have the new ones of detailed instructions that, that tell us how the complicated can be made more simple. I, uh, I have, uh, I'm an audiophile, and I'm going back to albums, and I have a, a record player, but I wanted to upgrade my stylus, so I ordered a new stylus. Now, you would think you just pop one in and pop one out, right? Good grief. There's like 15 pages of instructions in 20 different languages. 
It took me half an hour just to find English. And then as I start trying to connect it, there's these wires that need to be disconnected, and these wires need to be connected, and this thing that needs to be twisted. And I thought, good grief, what would I have done without these precepts, these simple instructions? And that's what the Scripture gives us, how to make the complicated things in life more simple. In verses 70, 72, and 77, the Bible's called the law. Now, what do you think of when you think of the law, right? The cosmic policeman in the sky? No, the the word law has the nuance, and that's what most Jews actually call the Torah, okay? The the Torah, um, and its main use is to develop intimacy and relationship. And so whenever you see law or Torah, the focal point is, is relationship. And of course, that's why it says in the New Testament, Jesus is the end of the law. It doesn't mean that the law disappears. It means Jesus is the end, meaning the aim, the goal, the focal point of the law. And Jesus is the one who brings us into intimate relationship with God. Verse 75, the Bible's called rules. Now, rules are the idea that God alone determines our values. And I've said this before. If, if you follow God's rules, which again doesn't mean behaviors as much as it means rules being values, your conservative friends are going to think you're too liberal. And your liberal friends are going to think you're too conservative. Because God's rules don't follow a political party. God's rules, just like God said to Joshua when Joshua said and Jesus showed up, are you for me or against me? And Jesus said, neither. How's that? You Republican, you Democrat, it's Jesus, what's he say? Neither. Jesus has values that he himself establishes. And that's what we get from Scripture. Verse 79, testimonies. Uh, that is, God testifies to us what is beautiful, good, and true. And then finally, in verse 76, promises. The Word of God are called promises. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3, we learn that through the great and magnificent promises, we actually could become partakers in the divine nature. Now, that doesn't mean we become little gods. We're, that's what, sadly, that's what Mormons believe. If you're a faithful Mormon, you'll become a little god. And you'll have your own world one day like Jesus has this world. We don't believe that. But we believe, in fact, that our union with Christ is strengthened through the promises and we're transformed day by day. 1 Peter 1, 23 talks about the promises and says we're born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Are you a Christian? This is what our catechism question deals with today. It's only by effectual calling. In other words, the power of the living word that God releases in our lives, that calls us to acknowledge our sin, to repent of it, to put our hope and trust in Christ, to transfer our trust from our own righteousness and our own record to the grace of God in the person of Christ who obeyed every command on our behalf, who fulfilled the law on our behalf who did everything in Scripture on our behalf and then took upon himself the law's curse so that we would not be cursed. A couple weeks ago, uh, Chad Walker was preaching 
And he told you the story about uh, Forrest Fenn, that art dealer and author who hid 10 years ago a million dollars worth of treasure in the Rocky Mountains, uh, someplace north of Santa Fe, New Mexico, but south of Canada. And he shared that it had actually been discovered, and sure enough, it was worth about a million dollars. Well, the way that they figured out where it was, was there a 24-line poem that Forrest Fenn had written. And this 24-line poem actually ended up giving the instructions that led to the treasure. God has given us a 176-line poem. And it leads to treasure far greater worth than a million dollars. The question is, will we seek for it in Scripture the way that people search for the treasure in the Rockies? People actually lost their lives searching for that treasure. Are we willing to lose our lives to search this treasure that we may find our lives May we recognize that Jesus is the treasure. And the person, upon finding the treasure in a field, went and sold all that they had that they might buy that field to gain that treasure. May we treasure God's word just like that. And may it change our lives so that God once again moves north. And America experiences revival again. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, we say that every week, but we mean it. And God, we want you to do a work of grace in us, that we would love your word. That when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we would want is not coffee, not food, not the morning paper. But the first thing we would have to do, not because we have to, but because we long to, is to read your word. And to get to know you through it. To get to know you in it. Get to know ourselves. To get to know about our world. And Lord, that it would bring life to our souls. God, thank you for scripture. May we eat it constantly. Feed on it and drink of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.